You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Sam King, CEO of Vericode, a cybersecurity company securing the software that runs the world. Sam, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Laura. Can you give us a quick overview? What exactly is Vericode? What does it mean securing the software that runs the world? So I think, as everybody knows, cybersecurity is a really important issue affecting our economy and affecting our world today. And the area of cybersecurity that we focus on is software applications. So we're using applications increasingly to connect with each other now, to do business with our customers and our partners. And Vericode works with organizations of all shapes and sizes across the globe to help them secure their software applications. Terrific. Thank you so much. So in that context, then, as CEO, what are your main job responsibilities? And as a result, who do you need to influence? So my main responsibility as CEO is to keep moving the organization forward and to drive great business results for our employees, for our investors, and ultimately to help secure the world software in pursuing our mission. And in terms of who I have to influence, you know, Laura, on a lot of days, it feels like everyone, but that's probably not a precise enough answer for your (laughs) audience. So let me elaborate on that a little bit. Sure. There are two main constituencies that come to mind to me. The first one is our buyers. So as I said at the outset, cybersecurity is such an important topic that people are paying a lot of attention to it. And people know organizations, enterprises know that they have to spend money to go secure their infrastructure, to secure their applications and so forth. As a result of that, there are a lot of great companies in this space and there are a lot of service providers each of whom is claiming that they can go help these customers and these buyers with their cybersecurity problems. So one of the big areas that we have to exercise influence is to convince our buyers to do business with us and rise up above the noisy sector that is cybersecurity. Sure. Now, you've done that rather effectively. I mean, you have, Vericode has, what, over 2,500 clients around the world? That's right. We have over 2,500 customers across the globe in all types of industries, all different sizes of customers. So yes, we've been able to get that message out quite successfully. And in attempting to do so, what's been the biggest communication challenge that you're facing nowadays? So the biggest communication challenge nowadays is how do you communicate effectively in this mode that we're all working in. And that really brings me to the second constituency that's important for us to influence, which is our employees. You know, one of the things that I found as we move to this remote way of working is that in some sense, it feels like we are communicating all the time. And now with the quote unquote benefit of video, because it's no longer phone calls. You always jump on a video conference. You're always doing Zoom or some form of Zoom. So sometimes I find myself wondering, is the end objective of the communication being met? So in other words, are we actually connecting with each other? Are we nurturing our culture as we 
communicate with each other through this new medium. And one of the things that I used to tell our team in the past when we were living in a physical world is practice random acts of micro-communication. What I meant by that was that if you happen to go to the kitchen to grab a cup of coffee and there's another Veracoder that is in the kitchen that you haven't met before, maybe you say hello to them and you ask them which department they work in and here you've made a connection and now you know somebody more in the organization that you did before. And that's what helps us create that connectedness and continue to nurture our culture. Well, how do you do that now when all communication is happening in this very prescribed way? So we have been very conscious about how do we try to bring back some of those elements of micro-communication into our world. So some of the things that we've done is we set up a Slack channel, as an example, called the shout-out channel, where if someone does something cool for you, someone helps you out on a particular area, just post a quick note to the shout-out channel and say, so-and-so did a great job helping me out. Kudos to them. Thank you. And then many other people will jump in behind that and congratulate the person. And so it creates this connectedness even while we're physically separating. We do town halls generally every four to five weeks where we get the whole company together on a webinar. And we have very consciously and purposefully tried to have non-business related items in the agenda. So one time we invited this organization called Java Joy. It employs adults with disabilities. And what they have is a mobile coffee cart where they would serve you coffee and give you a hug. And now they come in and they give you a virtual hug over Zoom to kick off your meeting. So we had them present in the meeting one time. We had one of our employees that's an accomplished opera singer kick off one of our town halls by singing an aria that they knew. And so, you know, introducing these types of things to have the end goal of the communication be achieved, which is creating connectedness in the organization, even as we distance from each other. Yes. It's interesting because prior to the pandemic, where everybody has been forced into this virtual world, you would think that companies that are global like yours, that are in particular very online tech focused, et cetera, and constantly working with teams in other cities, states, countries, et cetera, that this would have been valuable then as well. Do you find that it was something that prior to this you were already doing with the the remote location teams or were people just sort of not thinking about it? And now that everybody's doing it, it's sort of become an aha moment. Gee, perhaps we should have been doing this before, but hey, we're going to do it now. Well, here's how I will describe it. I think we will continue to do this well past the point of having to work this way. Mm. Because what it's taught us is that by introducing these elements of communication into the mix, we're actually doing a better job of communicating. So in the past, I think we just assumed that because we are within physical proximity of each other and we get to see people, that these types of communications are coming through organically. But now we've had to step back and think about them very deliberately So I think we'll be more deliberate and conscious about them even when we get to the next normal. So in order to get to where you are today now, Veracode's had an interesting history over the last couple of years with multiple acquisitions and separation. And you can give us a quick history of the trajectory over the last three or four years. But in going through those transitions in particular, what specific communication skills did you have to hone? Yeah, that's a great question. And we did go through a lot of change as any I would imagine successful technology organization goes through because when you grow as a company, especially as a software company, oftentimes 
corporate mergers and acquisitions become those vehicles for growth, or you grab the attention of a larger organization that is interested in what you have to offer to customers, and then you become part of that organization. So over the course of about 18 months to 24 months, so not a very long time period, we went from being a venture-backed, independent software company to becoming part of a large publicly traded software company, which then in turn got bought by another much larger publicly traded software company, which then created an opportunity for us to get divested and become an independent software company again, now backed by a different software investor. So in the course of 18 to 24 months, all that. they absolutely did. We had three owners officially during that time period, right? Yes. So having our organization go through that change management, the key to going through that successfully was just constant communication. And while all that change was going on, what I was very focused on was through our communications with our organization, how can I keep them centered and focused on our mission, which I know our team cares deeply about? So everything around us is changing, or it feels like everything around us is changing, but what has not changed is the expectations that our customers have of us. They still have software. That software still needs to be secure. And we have something of great value to offer them to secure that software, right? So continually bringing their attention back to this hasn't changed. This still matters. And we have an important role to play here. And I'm curious because I would think that in any given large change like an acquisition or a divestiture or something like that, the notion of that change can be very threatening to culture, to a company, to the individuals fearing, will my job be lost? What about this? What about that? So to have that happen on average every six months or so for an, for a year or two, then I would imagine that in the company, there must have been a perpetual sense of anxiety, like you're just starting to get your feet on solid ground. And then surprise, nope, here's another earthquake to set it off. What did you have to do? It, constant communication is one thing, but constant communication of what and how did you find that you had to adapt in order to quell those fears and the anxiety and help people feel secure that they were going to have a job in another three months and that everything was going to be okay? Yeah. So first of all, what I'll say is that not all of the changes that we went through, and actually none of the changes that we went through were necessarily bad, right? Because they were oh, no. all a consequence of like success that we were achieving. Yes. But even positive change can create some anxiety sure. because something is going to be different, but you don't know exactly what is going to be different and right. in what ways it is going to be different. So I think for me, it was starting with the macro factors, right? Like our mission, which I knew people cared about, but then connecting that to what matters to them individually, right? And and the framework that I started to use as we were going through these changes was, hey, what's in your sphere of control, right? Where do you have the ability to act? And you and you alone can take action and you can influence positive outcomes and you can influence progress, right? So restoring that sense of agency, helping people to think about what's in their sphere of control. Then I had people expand out of that and think about what's in your sphere of influence. So this is something that you can't directly control, but you have influence over this. So in my case, the sphere of influence was 
the new buyers, as an example, or the new owners, educating them on our business, educating them on what matters to our employees, educating them on policy decisions that we were going to take about how benefits were going to change for our employees, as an example, as we went from one corporate structure to another corporate structure. So what are those influence targets that our employees have in the work that they're doing every single day because they can take action in their sphere of control. They can try to influence as best they can those people that are in their sphere of influence. And you can do a great job of both of these by continually making sure that you have the right knowledge and the right context to bring to those conversations. And so all I was trying to do there by providing examples to them of what I'm doing in my sphere of control, like communicating with them a lot more than I was before, what I'm doing in my sphere of influence was to bring that sense of agency back to everyone. Because when people feel like they have the ability to take action, they feel a little bit more in control and the change becomes less threatening. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's quelling that anxiety and that sense of control, I think, is so important for, for so many, especially when you're just, quote unquote, an employee you don't get to make the decision of who gets bought, who gets hired, who gets fired. That's really critical to be able to re-empower them with that sense of autonomy. Absolutely. Then along this journey, what's a big communication-related mistake that you made or a lesson that you had to learn the hard way? So an example that comes to mind, Laura, is earlier in my career, maybe one of the first times that I had taken over responsibility for managing a team, I wanted to have that team move in a particular direction. And I absolutely did not carry it out the way that I should have. So I remember that I wanted that team to start pursuing a particular strategy. And I knew in my mind what this strategy is. And I had my ideas well thought out and validated on the basis of analyst reports and all sorts of data and facts. And so I thought that the best way to get the team to go implement that strategy would be to just talk to them about it, but not necessarily listen. And so after a few attempts of conveying my ideas to them and saying, this is how we should do this, and then starting to see that things weren't actually moving along in that direction and that I wasn't really landing, I had to pause and think about what is going on here. Because in my mind, these ideas were extremely well-framed. They were validated on the basis of all of this external data. Why is everybody not following these already, right? And so the do-over for me was recognizing that I wasn't having the impact that I wanted to have. And so what do I do differently here? And what I did differently was focus on the listening part of it. So instead of going back and saying, these are my ideas, we should do it this way. I started by asking them questions about what do they think the strategy should be? What has the strategy been so far? Where has it worked? Where has it not worked? In their day-to-day job, where do they think they're being successful? Where are they running into friction? And by asking a lot of those questions and engaging their thinking versus just telling them what I was thinking, I was able to have much more success because then the strategy became something that we came up with collectively versus my ideas based on all of what I had read and all of what I had learned. Great. Then what's the next big goal for you, whether personally or for Veracode? And what communication skills are you going to need to continue to develop in order to achieve it? It comes down to, again, knowing your audience and understanding what your audience cares about. So there's a big shift that is happening in our market in particular. For the longest time, security people, so 
people inside an organization whose job responsibility it is to do cybersecurity were the ones that cared about security. But as security has become more important, and as we continue to hear all of this news that we do about breaches and so forth, cybersecurity has become a topic that everyone in the organization needs to care about. So you have now people in the business that are responsible for finance or that are responsible for software development or that are responsible for HR or legal that are not technologists when it comes to cybersecurity, but that now feel like they have a role to play here and they're stakeholders in improving the security posture of any given company. So when we think about the next communication challenge, what we have to think about is how do we take the message of what we do beyond the security audience that we have been speaking to for years and years? How do we take that message to the development team as an organization that is writing code, that is creating the software that might have a vulnerability in it that ultimately causes some harm to occur? So it's the shifting audience. And how do we build on the successes that we've had with the security team to now go demonstrate the successes that we are bringing about for the development organization in particular? So I'm curious because I think a lot of people who are not in IT may need some help teasing apart the distinction between those. So if I understood correctly, what I heard you say was that the message of what you do, what Veracode does, is the one specific audience that you have been working with is the security team, the need to bring what you do to the security team. But now that has to go from the security team to the development team, who are the actual coders. Why is that not already one and the same? What is the message that is brought to the security team not inherently part of what the coders would hear? The job responsibilities for those two people are different in the organization. The security team has to care about compliance. They have to care about the regulatory and the audit requirements that the organization is under. And ultimately, they have to make sure that the organization is protected and the organization can respond to any kind of security incident that might happen. The development organization, on the other hand, is responsible for creating these experiences for your customers, for your partners, whether you're in the B2C space or the B2B space. So the job responsibilities historically have been different for the security team and the development team. And what is happening is that the development team is creating software and they're creating software by writing code. They're creating software by sometimes reusing open source code that somebody else wrote. They're creating software by making use of commercial software that they buy from another third party. And the security team has to work with the development team to make sure that all of these different types of code that they're creating or reusing has security built into it, even though the original job responsibility of the development team was to go create applications, to go create these great user experiences, not necessarily go create them with security in mind. So So historically, the two have come at it from different places. So do you help one translate to the other? Do you now request the opportunity to speak directly to the coders so that you don't need compliance or in the security department to explain it for you and do the whisper down the lane? What is the what's the new direction? That's exactly right. So one of the things that we insist on is making sure that both are in the conversation to begin with. Mm. Right. Because I think in the past, a lot of conversations were had about security with security. And now we insist on making sure that you've got the development team in the conversation, that you have the security team in the conversation, that the requirements and what both of these audience members care about 
is presented right up front. So there's a mutual understanding of what the needs are in both areas. And then we, as a service provider, can work with both of them to make sure that their needs are met and that ultimately both of them are successful in doing what they do. It's just much easier when you can speak to them both directly as opposed to having one translate to the other. Exactly. Exactly. It's funny. I've worked with a lot of clients over the years on areas that have to be a bit more cautious with what they share publicly, whether it's asset management firms or otherwise, where I'm working with someone on preparing for a presentation, a media interview, a podcast, uh, whatever it happens to be, and they have to have their answers run through the compliance department first. And I keep saying, please, you could have them approve it or something, but I need to reapprove after compliance approves because we truly, and all of you out there in the world of compliance, we are truly grateful for what you do. But the one thing you should not be allowed to do is write script, <laughs> write dialogue. Is When you have the compliance attorneys, it will be meticulous and accurate and safe but not conversational, not typically the most translatable to the average ear. So we have to find that happy medium that everybody is safe and comfortable with, but still can digest, can process, that has meaning to whoever the ultimate end user happens to be. That's exactly right. And, you know, what happens is that over time that education occurs. And so Let's say we are not able to get both of the teams, the security and the development team, in the conversation at the same time. Mm -hmm. We just talk to the security team. As long as we just highlight for them what the concerns and the considerations of the development team will be, and we do that continually, when they go have that conversation with the development team, even without us present, it can be a better conversation because one team member has been educated on the needs of the other. You've primed them for what they need to anticipate. Terrific. Now, Sam, this brings us to our listener 24-hour influence challenge. So this is your opportunity to speak directly to our listeners and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How do you want to challenge our listeners today? So I think one of the most effective tools for me has been developing skill set around storytelling. And so the challenge that I want to put out for your audience is if you have to go present at a meeting, or if you have to go communicate an idea to somebody in the next you know, week or a month, think about a story that you can anchor your conversation in. Maybe an anecdote that you start your presentation with or a story that you tell to give an example to the audience to help them understand what you're pitching or what you're trying to convey. Love it. Storytelling, storytelling, storytelling. I'm hearing that everywhere, not necessarily in the listener challenges, but it's such becoming such a pervasive theme. It's not enough to just give the verbal spreadsheet, so to speak, worth of data. You have to paint the picture and storytelling will definitely help you do that in Technicolor. So you've got your marching orders, everybody. Come up with a story of some sort to illustrate, contextualize, or otherwise bring to life the data or the context, the pitch, the idea that you have to present to somebody else. That sounds like fun. At least to me, it sounds like fun. Maybe not to other people out there, but give it a shot. I think it'll be fun. All right, Sam, let's talk now about how you lead others. When you think about executive presence, leadership presence, command presence, has lots of different labels, what does it mean to you? So I think about leadership as a role where ultimately you have to build trust with those that you're leading so that you can influence them and empower them to go achieve the results that the organization has to achieve. 
And one of the speakers, authors that has influenced my thinking in this regard is Frances Frey. She is a professor at Harvard Business School for Technology and Operations Management. People also refer to her as the culture consultant. And she talks about the three pillars that leaders have to pay attention to when they're trying to build trust. And those three pillars are logic. Do you make sense or not? Mm -hmm. Authenticity. You know, do people believe you and are you coming from an authentic place? And then the third one is empathy. Do you understand what it is like to be in people's shoes? And these three things come together to create this feeling of trust. And every human being on the planet has an area of strength and has an area of what she calls your wobble. So when I think about executive presence, I'm really thinking about those three things coming together. Can you make sense? Do you seem to come from an authentic place? And are you able to convey that sense of empathy for the people that you're leading? And there's always going to be an area that you have to be improving in. Sure. Now, that's a great framework. Can you say her name again? Frances Frey. Frances Frey, F-R-A-Y? F-R-E-I, if I'm not mistaken. I got it. F-R-E-I. We'll be sure to put that in the show notes so everybody can take a look at it. And she is a, she's a professor at Harvard Business School, you mentioned. And she's done a lot of TED Talks specifically oh. on this framework. So I, if people go uh, just search her name, I'm sure they'll come upon her TED Talks. And I, and I had the privilege of meeting her at a Women in Technology Leadership Conference that I was attending and got to hear her speak and got to spend some time with her. And she was fantastic. Great. I love those. We'll try to find that TED Talk link and put it up in the show notes as well for those who want quick and easy access. A TED Talk is always a good way to start the weekend, the week, or just the day for that matter. Now, when you're looking to groom a high potential employee or hire someone for a leadership role, what are the most important communication skills you look for? And on the flip side, the other side of the coin, what's a red flag that could be a derailer? Yeah. So the most important communication skills that I am looking for is can they provide context, not just content, right? And can they talk to the audience, not just about what they want them to think, but also what they want them to feel? And this is really born out of, again, this framework of leadership and creating trust that I was talking about earlier, because both of those things, being able to provide the context so people understand the larger picture about whatever the micro task is that they're performing is important. And as important as it is to engage people's intellect, you also have to engage their emotion, especially in the way that we're working today. So those two things from a communication skill perspective are really important for me to see. Sure. Then what would be on the other end of the spectrum? They could show you those things, but if they showed you this other thing, it would make you pull the plug. Yeah. So the other thing for me is, listen, I admire ambition in people and I admire drive in people, but sometimes ambition in particular can start to turn into self-interest. Mm. And so if I hear a lot of I, me, that will start to give me some concern around, is it too much about them? versus about the people that they're leading. Yes. And yes. that could be a turnoff for me. That's always a hard balance, isn't it? The ability to show what your role was, but not hugging all the glory and all the credit for it. That's right. Because especially when you're in a leadership position, you didn't achieve those results on your own. Right. Right. And by the way, if you did, you weren't a good leader. Because <laughs> what, were, what, what was everybody else doing? Right. And so when you're in a leadership position, you have to demonstrate that you were able to influence and empower the people that you're leading to get to those results. So if the conversation is all about I and me and what I did, 
that can be an indicator that perhaps it rests too much on your shoulders or you don't have the ability to bring other people along. Right, right. Then what is it that when your people are bringing ideas to you, they're pitching an idea to you, what's something you wish they would do more of or do less of or a time that they did pitch something to you and it, it just did not land right? What should they have done differently? Yeah. So, you know, there are like two examples that come to mind to me. One is when you're interviewing somebody, effectively, they're pitching themselves to you, right? They're pitching their idea to you. And I recently had this experience where I was interviewing a candidate and it was on Zoom, of course. And I think for about 15, maybe 20 minutes, they just spoke at me. And even when I was obviously trying to interject and maybe ask a clarifying question about what they were saying, they just kept talking because they had prepared a narrative and a commentary that they needed to get out there. And so they were going to get it out there. And they just talked for 15 to 20 minutes. And that was off-putting, I have to say. That did not (laughs) land well. Yes. (laughs) That didn't land well because... You're not reading my body language. You're not reading the fact that I'm getting ready to ask a question. You're not engaging. You are talking one-sided. So so that was an example of a recent situation where somebody was pitching themselves to me and it didn't go so well. Yes. And not only does it show the, forgive for interrupting, not only does that show lack of interest in reading body language and whatnot, assuming that they can read it on on video if you can see enough, but that just shows such marked lack of self-awareness that you've been, I always like to draw the distinction between, I, I don't want to hold my audience captive. I want them to be captivated by it when I'm speaking to them. And this sounds like somebody who is quite literally holding you as captive, holding you hostage, and he was not going to let it go until he had finished everything he wanted to say. Say. And you have to wonder if they did prepare something and really think about how what they needed to get through. Did you prepare it to the point where you were including all of those pieces in your rehearsal and you prepared it to be 15 or 20 minutes and you thought that was okay? Or on the flip side, did you rehearse it in your head and think it was going to be a three to five minute answer and were oblivious to the fact that it took 20 to get it out? Like none of those are good. Just makes me really curious as to whether it was option A, B, C, or D as to how your brain works on those things? I don't know, but I know that we talk to our team, especially our sales team, to be what we call audible ready, Mm -hmm. which is, let's say you're trying to get some information out there, right? You're making a pitch, you're covering a quote with a customer, whatever it is. You always have to be audible ready, which is to take in those inputs. They could be visual, they could be body language, they could be a question if you gave the person the opportunity to ask a question, right? That trigger the need to go in a slightly different direction. Mm-hmm. And this person was not audible ready, right? Mm-hmm. So I think what happened was they were just very rooted in the information that they wanted to convey to me. And I had to listen to it. Yes. <laughs> you know, so I love your distinction of you want your audience to not be captive, but feel captivated. I think that's a great way to think about it. The whole question is, are the doors closed because no one's pushing them open or because no one can push them open to escape? (laughs) All right. So now, Sam, this brings us to the speed round. So quickly, these are three topics that commonly arise in my training and coaching. I'm going to ask you to pick in a kind of a false binary. People tend to think of them as very black or white issues. I'm going to ask you to pick what your natural instinct is on these black and white perceptions, and then we'll identify a little bit of the gray afterwards. So first, public speaking, love it or hate it? Love it. Can you give then as part of the gray, what's a tip for managing nerves and speaking with confidence, even if you don't feel it? 
deep breathing. Every time I get up to do a keynote or some large presentation, I will take five deep breaths and just inhale to a count of five, exhale to a count of five. And it really helps calm the nerves. It does. Actually, there are plenty of, of studies out there and yogic breathing and many singers will do it. Athletes will do it. Even if you just take your pulse beforehand and then do those five or 10 deep breaths and take your pulse again afterwards, I will just about guarantee you should notice a significant difference unless there's really something massively anxiety inducing going on. Then what about this introvert or extrovert? Of course, it's not actually A or B, but where do you fall on that continuum? Introvert. As a self-proclaimed introvert, what's a strength, a natural strength, and what's an area that you still need to work on? Yeah, so I think the strength is that I have no problem being by myself and taking time to reflect on the world around me. It could be the business world that I'm living in. It could be my life. It could be anything. But I'm quite content and happy and even relaxed being by myself and just reflecting in what's going on and trying to draw insights for myself and in some cases draw inspiration and then thinking about what do I do and how do I take this insight and turn it into some kind of action. So I think that allows me to observe more because I can take the time to reflect. Okay. And an area for growth. Yeah, I think the area for growth is that because I'm an introvert, I am terrible at parties. I am terrible at like small talk. I don't know how to do it. And over the years, I've, you know, practiced and gotten a little bit better. But just having those micro communications that I was referring to earlier, mm -hmm. that's been work for me for sure. And it continues to be an area of work for me. And I have to imagine that not having the opportunity to practice those random acts of micro communication while we've been in this remote mode is going to set me back a little bit. So I'm going to have to get used to it again once we're back in the real world. Yes. Yeah. It's funny. I had a client not too long ago say I was who was does tend to feel a lot of anxiety in those very social, larger contexts. So he was so tired of being in the pandemic mode. And so looking forward to connecting with people in person, he was like, I actually would look forward to the opportunity to be uncomfortable in a networking situation again. Like that's how tired he was of just being pent up. Yeah, I think, I, think, I think I can empathize. I can empathize with him. I'm, I'm pretty much there too. <laughs> okay. And finally, conflict. Nobody likes it. But when faced with a potential conflict or a difficult conversation, is your natural DNA instinct hardwiring to want to avoid it or to want to address it head on? Address it head on. And what have you learned about that tendency in order to effectively manage conflict? What I've learned about managing conflict is that my natural hardwiring is sometimes not the most effective for me to actually get to the resolution on that conflict. And why here's not? why. My tendency is to address it head on and not let it prolong itself and resolve it in the moment. But just because that's my hardwiring and my tendency, it doesn't mean that is another person's. There are a lot of people that might want to take some time to reflect on what happened, that might take some time to sort out their own thinking and their own feelings. And if I am forcing resolution on the topic in the moment, I'm not giving them the opportunity to work through conflict in a way that works best for them. So I think what I've had to learn over the years is recognize the situations where it is something that I should address in the moment with the person that I'm having conflict with versus 
when I should just give it some space and I go reflect on it and they go reflect on it and then we come back around to it. So you do actually acknowledge it in the moment, but if only to say, let's address this topic in a short while. So we both have top time to think about it, not letting it sit for too long while you think about it before you even let them know. That's right. That's a really good distinction. And even as recently as, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had to say to someone, I recognize that you and I are on different pages on this particular matter. How about we take some time over the holidays to think about it, and then let's come back in the new year with a fresh mind and let's reconnect on this. Exactly. Terrific. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. This has really been great. And I learned a lot for that matter, even about cybersecurity and the differences between things like the development team and the security team. I would have sort of assumed that they were united, and I'm glad now I know that they're not. Well, we're playing our part in trying to get them united. And it was great to be on the show. So thank you for having me. And thank you, everybody out there for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on iTunes so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my quick start guide to mastering the three C's, command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.